Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You saw it. You saw the marchers. By and large, there was a movement there that looked really different from Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, which says to me that there's a gut reaction that might have been opened up by George Floyd's killing, that precious freedom has gotten challenged, and the majority of folks want to protect that freedom. People are are willing to risk a lot, even during this period pandemic to show their support for our freedom. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show for Black History Month, we're featuring a chat with Ed Rigaud, the first president and CEO of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. It was a great chat about coming up as a black professional in the 60s and 70s and a reflection on where we are today. This conversation was actually recorded in June of 2020 when we were in the midst of a long overdue reckoning on race in America. And this is actually a conversation from my other podcast, Learnings from Leaders, where we have candid mentorship-style conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and philanthropists, most of whom are alums of the Procter & Gamble Company, where many of my friends and I got our career started. It's a show featuring candid mentorship-style chats for the next generation of leaders. Here's a quick bio about Ed. Ed Rigaud has led a storied career as a Black American leader. He had a 36-year career at Procter & Gamble where he was the R&D technical brand manager that helped create Pringles. And more importantly, he was the second ever Black vice president in the company's history. Then John Pepper tapped Ed to be the first president and CEO of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. He became the first African-American co-owner and lead investor of the Cincinnati Reds baseball team. He's the chairman and owner of Innova Premier and the chairman and CEO of Legacy Acquisition. Ed has served on a lot of boards. He's done work for governors and even a sitting U.S. president. He's a husband, a father, a grandfather, and an artist and a guitar player. So basically a renaissance man. I really think you're going to enjoy hearing our chat with Ed. So check it out. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Ed, a lot of people already know your professional story. A 36-year career at Procter & Gamble where you were the R&D technical brand manager that helped create Pringles. You were the second ever black vice president in the company's history. First president and CEO of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. First African-American co-owner and lead investor in the Reds. Chairman and owner of Anova Premier. Chairman and CEO of Legacy Acquisition. You've served on boards. You've done work for governors and a sitting U.S. president. You're a husband, a father, a grandfather, and an artist and a guitar player. There is so much in there I want to ask you about. But first, 
Who were you before the beginning of your career journey? What's a story from your youth? Well, as an African-American growing up in New Orleans in the early 40s and 50s, I was a poor young man who had aspirations that I probably <laughs> didn't deserve to have, but I had them anyway. What do you mean by that, Ed? We didn't deserve to have them. Well, you know, if you look at the plight of poor people in our country, very few are able to escape. Right. And in fact, I've seen some research on this that says it takes eight generations to turn that around. And so I find myself being very fortunate to come out of it. But at the same time, I know that I strove to success in terms of economic success, career success, and actually mastery and excellence. So how that happened in hindsight is I was fortunate enough to fall into a, a very strong educational system and I had parents who encouraged education and it was Catholic nuns in my elementary school <laughs> and it was Catholic priests in my high school. My high school was exceptional and that I think got me off to the right start. But you but you had some roadblocks too, didn't you? Because you applied to, I believe you applied to LSU and again, sign the times back then they said no yes i was third in my class in high school and it was a very strong academic institution that yeah i won most of the awards for science and math and language and so i, I fully expected that i was going to get into lsu and study architecture mm -hmm. which you know was my dream and i applied in 1961 and received a letter from them which I still have the letter. It says, uh, we're sorry, but our policies will not allow you on our campus at this time. Wow. And I thought, what policies? <laughs> you yeah. know, what, what are they talking about? But so I, I did make an attempt to fight that. And I don't know if the name Moriel means anything to you, but Mark Moriel's dad was a, an attorney and he was going to help me fight it. But he said, uh, Ed, you have to be willing to stay out of school for a couple, maybe three years while we fight this. Otherwise, if you go to another school, you, you won't have standing. Yeah. And I said, uh, nope. <laughs> You had plans. Yeah, I said, I, I'll just pick a, a different area to study. I had a scholarship to Xavier University in New Orleans, and they didn't have architecture or engineering, but they had chemistry and uh, science, and so that's the route I went. Uh, it's funny, my dad's an architect, and I always ask, Dad, very different circumstances, but I ask him, Dad, why, why'd you become an architect? Your love of art? And he's like, no, because I couldn't become a doctor. <laughs> and But it's this, the, the reason I kind of relay that lesson is perseverance forward. Yes, yes. You know? You zag when the world zigs. And yeah, I continually, every time I try to check the privilege of my generation, I think about that. The choices we have, right, from previous generations having to go through things. So flashing forward to today, how are you similar to that young version of yourself? You said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to wait three years. I'm going to go study chemistry instead. How are you similar? How are you different from that young man? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't changed, and you, you actually used the word perseverance. I, I have to say that it 
is my strongest trait. That and intellectual curiosity and wanting to do analysis and synthesis together, do strategy development. And, you know, that that's my strength. And I just go after it in any project that I'm working on or any career direction I'm working on. I don't give up. (laughs) (laughs) When did you figure that out about yourself? Did you just know immediately or it's just it's something you turned around 10 years later and you saw, okay, I just put my nose on anything. I can do it. No, you know, I can remember my mother. I do this artwork when I was, you know, three or four years old and she would encourage me. She'd say, oh, that's beautiful, son. Go make mom another one. Uh huh. And so I thought that what I was doing was pleasing my parents. Uh-huh. And it was probably the year that I joined P&G, I started thinking about that. It's not my parents that I'm trying to please. It's in me. It's intrinsic. I mean, it's I have to be successful and I have to be the best or I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped trying to please my parents and kind of focus more inwardly. Yeah, there's a saying, I don't know how it goes, but it's like, you can't be happy in life or with other people till you're happy with yourself. Yeah. Right. And that's the focus. So I want to jump into the career. Can you tell me about one of those early career moments? I mean, you moved to Cincinnati. I think you you had just gotten married and you started (laughs) this big company, right? It's it's not Louisiana anymore. I got to ask through the lens of being a black man. I don't know. When I joined PNG, we were very diverse, right? People from all countries, all colors, all, all backgrounds. But I'm guessing PNG didn't look like that back then. <laughs> oh, Robin, I was the first African American in R and D, first black manager. Yeah, and that's you know also a, a very critical part of my makeup because I was a I was very conciliatory. I tried to please folks. And I can remember there was a executive VP, Don Lowry, who invited me to lunch one day. He wanted to analyze me. <laughs> he looked at me with his cold blue eyes and he said, you got to stop trying to please people hmm. and and show what you can do yourself. And man, did that hit me between the eyes. You know, he was right. And I think I walked on eggs early in my career because I didn't want to upset the apple cart. You know, I was the first. Was that perspective as a black man or just as just a man, I guess? Um, More as a a black man, because you could feel the arrows coming at you. You know, I can remember once being in a meeting where we were going around the table with ideas and I presented my idea, concept really, and nobody applauded it. Nobody booed it. And they just kept going around the table and it came to another guy. You know, these were all other, you know, white members. And he said the same thing I had just said. And everybody went, oh, yeah, that's that's it. That's what we should do. Mm -hmm. And I I can remember my blood boiling. And I stood up and pounded the table and said, that's what I just said. Hmm. So, no, there wasn't sensitivity yet. And then the next phase was. Ed, I'm sorry. I want to ask a a, a follow-up question to that moment. 
Yeah. Because I, I have another podcast where we talk about diversity in the workplace. And I have black friends who say they choose not to do that in the moment because of the perception of, oh, the black guy's pounding, you know, like, or women who say, I don't want to be perceived as bossy, etc. So mm-hmm. they hold back, they code switch in the meeting, they behave differently. And I got to ask in that moment, when you pounded your fist on the table, what happened next? Like, what, what was the reaction of the people in the room? Did you get pulled aside later? Did Were there consequences of that? Or was it better or worse after that moment? It was utter shock. Yeah. And no, no one talked to me afterwards about it. They heard my point. Right. But, you know, it was also at, at a time where more blacks were being hired. What year was this roughly? Oh, roughly? Well, it would have been probably 1970-ish. Okay, okay. Which is another, actually another story in my career, which I I really didn't get much uh, attention for promotion and advancement in my first nine years. And we had a, a director in product development who left P&G and went to Pillsbury. Okay. And what I heard was that was the first time any director level person had left P&G to go to a competitor. First time in history. Hmm. And it turned out when I got moved out of that situation with this guy and into a different division, my new director said, they've been sitting on you, Ed. He said, I don't know why. He said, but we're going to fix that. He said, you have had the highest ratings in that area for nine years and and you should have been promoted. I mean, he was really honest, Ken Erickson. He was really (laughs) You know, and I appreciate that as I look back on it. He was uh, very honest. And in the course of the next year and a half, I got three promotions. I I, got to ask another question. And again, it's through the lens of contrasting today, the the era we live in versus what you were going through. So I kind of know the answer as I'm asking this, but like nine years they were sitting on you. You weren't moving forward in, in today's economy. Uh, a young black executive in R&D with a great degree would be like, you know what? I'm going to start hunting around. I'm going to start floating my resume and would have been out of there, right? Why'd you stick around? Why would you stick it out those nine years? It was unheard of to shop around. The culture was totally different. And in fact, I don't think that notion came to R&D until well after it did in advertising. You know, yeah, my generation's got it easier. <laughs> yeah, really. And, and you know, moving around is a good thing. It wasn't a good thing in, in my era. It was a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. So, are are there other moments that kind of influence and informed throughout your career? Kind of not just your trajectory. You got those three promotions in a row, but projects that you worked on, lessons that you learned along the way. Yeah, yeah. There was. There. So I moved to what was then called Toilet Goods and mm-hmm. revamped the Secret brand. Okay. New package, new perfume, new everything, new active ingredients, and then worked with the agency to come up with the strong enough for a man made for a woman. You know, Mm -hmm. we did that in a brainstorming session uh, and it lasted until last year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable. But in that work and the Pringles work, I learned, I came up with what I thought was very insightful model for innovation. And it had four phases. 
to it, mm-hmm. from conceptualization to modeling to feasibility to launch. And I put some guts flesh that out as to uh, what happens in each of those phases, what kind of management style works best, what decisions need to be made to move to the next phase, yeah, the, the whole thing. And I went upstairs to the 11th floor and touted this new model as what the company ought to uh, focus on. What level were you at when you walked upstairs to do that? I would have been an associate director then. Okay. Wow. And it got a lot of attention, you know, from all the VPs that I talked to. They created a product launch committee task force broadly across the company to basically take that model and, you know, work it. The unfortunate thing was I wasn't included in the task force. (laughs) What? (laughs) No. I got to ask, like upon reflection, and I promise I'm not fishing for an answer, but why was that? Was it just, well, he's just an AD, you know, we, we'll take the idea. We got it from here, Ed, or was, was there something else there? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it was a little bit of a hurt. But the fact that P&G came out with a four phase product launch model <laughs> was, uh, was interesting. But that innovation model has driven me on everything I, I've done since then. And I think it should be applied broadly beyond the business to some social endeavors, initiatives. So that's one. The other is the model. And as you can tell, I like models. <laughs> the model for freedom developed when I was at the Freedom Center. And, and in both cases, I don't take personal claim to those. They, they somehow came to me uh-huh. just out of, you know, synthesis of a lot of experiences and it just came out. So all of us face different career forks in the road, these these different inflection points, you know, where you make a decision about yourself, whether it's on the home front, on the work front, these decisions kind of set us on a path. Or some of those forks in the road for you in your career? I would say, as I said before, people were very loyal, long-term employees of Procter & Gamble, you know, lifers. And But I had one interruption in the mid-70s where a man by the name of Mo Siegel, who was the founder of Celestial Seasonings, brought me out to Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. and offered me a position that was well above where I was at P&G. And that was, that was a moment where I had to decide. And I decided to stick it out at P&G and yeah. not take the challenge in celestial seasonings and it made me understand myself better did you You understand about yourself that i was not prepared to stand alone so i had you know you know the png army i mean i had yeah yeah yeah. i had all the support and you know when i asked mo siegel where's the support he said it's you you develop it you know (laughs) (laughs) and i i I thought i can't do that i'm not ready to do that but then i had the transition late in my career of going out you know as an executive on loan to yeah the freedom center do the work on the freedom center and i found out yes you can do it on your own 
something someone told me as I was leaving the company, they were like, you don't know how good you are on your own until you leave. And it's it's the thing I love about PNG, even being on the outside now is the support network, never mind the resources, but uh, the thing I've learned about myself, I want to be on a team with really smart people that you yeah. can tap, yeah. but th- that team can exist outside too, but you have to, form- it's on you. I would imagine it was on you at the Freedom Center to assemble the team or figure out the resources and unlock the, the talent that you had to work with there, right? From scratch. Yeah. Can you talk about that moment, that jumping over to the Freedom Center? Because you were there. I feel like you not the first, well, you were one of the first guys in charge there, but you were there before the building was built. It was building something from scratch. I was there before the first person was hired. I hired, I was the first person, and I hired the team. What was that meeting like when I'm guessing, was it John that tapped you, John Pepper that tapped you to do it? Yes. What was that conversation? So I was on the board of the National Conference of Christians and Jews, the NCCJ, and the director, Chip Herrett, was the one who had this idea to create something for the Underground Railroad. And he said, Ed, would you be willing to lead this? And I said, well, you know, Chip, I've got something called a job. He said, well, what if, we, what if we can get John Pepper to agree to let you go? I said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, and actually, my wife encouraged me. She said, yeah, you should, you should do that. That would be something really important. And we went in to see John. I can remember the meeting distinctly. And John was already convinced that this was a great idea. And he he said, we'll, we'll put you on loan for a couple of years to do it. Well, when I did the research on how long it takes to create and build a, uh, an institution that large, I found out it takes nine years. And guess what? It took nine years. <laughs> <laughs> and P&G let me go after six. You know, I... I couldn't go back to PNG even if they wanted me back. I couldn't do it because I had felt, you know, just what you said, that you find out what you are capable of doing on your own once you're on your own. Hmm. Who have been your mentors along the way? Who have been the, the folks that you've gone to for advice and counsel as you made some of these big jumps and decisions? Well, I tend to be inward thinking but if I had to, you know, name some folks who were really helpful to me, I mean, I would Charlie Ferguson and Mike Milligan and Paul Bates and Ken Erickson and Sandy Weiner and John Smale and John Pepper and Brad Butler and Don Lowry, you know, folks like that. What about folks like that? What, what do they do for you? They were so perceptive and so smart. Take Mike Milligan. Mike asked me when I was still in R&D what do you want to do next? And I said, I was pretty clear. I said, I want to get more involved in marketing and general management. So I want to make a jump from R&D. And he said, that's not something that you can do very often here in this company. It's not something that's happened very often. So he said, but in your case, Ed, he said, you can do anything. He said, I'll support you. I'll sponsor you. And, you know, the next month I was general manager of food service and lodging products. Wow. And that, that's when Chip Berg worked for me and he helped me uh, a lot to understand the downtown culture. But so Mike, I can remember I had an automobile accident going from Winton Hill to downtown for a meeting. And it was a kind of a fender bender, but apparently I ruptured my spleen. Oh, man. And I went into the hospital. I was in the hospital for 11 days. 
Mike Milligan was at the hospital every night for the 11 days. Wow. You know, he he was kind of a military guy who loved his troops. And, you know, he was there. He, uh, he was there holding my wife's hand when I, I had two surgeries. And he held her hand through both of them. Wow. You know, and Ken Erickson was a similar. This is actually an important distinction here because one of the things that Lloyd Ward said this, and I think John Pepper included it in his book on what really matters. John asked Lloyd why he was leaving P&G. And Lloyd said, John, because I don't feel like I'm in the house. Hmm. And so, you know, I felt differently because Ken Erickson invited me to parties at his house. And, you know, he was like a, a father. And, and it's true that with the racial difference, Many African-Americans don't feel like they're in the house. Do you think as as kind of a, a manager and a mentor to others now, especially as a black man who might manage or mentor white managers, people, is that something you have to relate to them? Like this, the idea of, I know you've talked about inclusion as part of freedom. Is, is that part of the inclusion that you have to coach? Because John Pepper says, it's not just what you do, it's how you make people feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was another turning point in my career. I was appointed director in food service and lodging products. Mm -hmm. And I knew what was going on there. There was a, a manager who was very tough and there were a lot of disgruntled employees who morale was low. They felt frightened by this guy. And I went in. First thing I did was interview every person one-on-one -on -one for 45 minutes. And then I called them all together and explained that things were going to be different. Uh, and I had done that individually to each one of them as well. And that the principle or the ideals and values that I had as a manager were going to develop trust. And so I said, I manage with HOFF, H-O-F-F. And HOFF stands for Honesty, Openness, Fairness, and Fun. And so we did an offsite, which had business meetings and a picnic that followed. And all the employees had gotten together and designed the t-shirt that everybody got that had Hoff on it with a dragon. So it was Hoff <laughs> the magic dragon. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, when I run into those folks, you know, and occasionally run into them in social circles to the number, they say Hoff has changed their lives. Wow. They practice it in their lives. That's great. So John Pepper has mentioned that you were one of the first managers to to kind of raise awareness of the importance of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And again, my generation, it's just whether or not it's done well, let's be very clear, it's still important, but it's, I, I would argue, it's just a term that sometimes gets thrown around versus yes. use. But back then, it was not a thing. It wasn't even a known thing. And what was that moment? How did you raise awareness of it? How did you convince people this thing that maybe they didn't care about was the thing they needed to care about? And, and what were the actions that you took? Yeah, well, I did a lot of it one-on-one. -on -one. I can remember I had a technician who, who actually served in Hitler's youth army. No. Yeah. <laughs> International company, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't trust me at first. And he 
get a lot of racial views that were ignorant. But we eventually got to be friends. And he told me, he admitted he was frightened to work with me initially. But I would say that the early diversity, what they call it multiculturalism at the time, the early training was it was an attempt, but I think it was ill-advised, frankly. Say more. Because, well, yeah. what it what it did, it called on the handful of African-American managers who had been hired during the mid-60s and early 70s to do the training. Got it. Yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying. It's like, it, that's... <laughs> it almost needs to be the leadership of the majority that has to be yeah. sharing and endorsing this. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and f- that was further complicated by the tone of race relations during that era. When was this? In the late 60s, early 70s. Okay. Okay. It was, it was very militant. Wow. You know, and, and, and frankly, the, the people who were trying to pull this off. Mm-hmm. They were more like me, conciliatory, you know, not militant. Mm-hmm. And, and there were a couple of outside trainers who came in and scared the heck out of the white managers hmm. and put them in humiliating positions. I know even John Pepper got one of those. <laughs> but Did it work, though? I don't think so. Awareness-wise, yes. Okay. Yeah, no question. It worked. It, it raised awareness, heightened awareness tremendously. And, and I think we're still behind in this regard. I don't really have a good sense of where PNG is now, but I I do know that there are better techniques that haven't been utilized yet. John Pepper and I talk about this all the time. I want the Freedom Center to lead an effort to teach dialogue. Right. True dialogue. Right. And so my dear friend, Dan Yankelovich, who used to run the largest polling business in the country, also had a consumer insight business. Mm -hmm. Dan has a a book called The Magic of Dialogue. I I don't know if it's still in publication, but it lays out very simply what things you need to do, what principles to to have true dialogue, a f- true effective dialogue. And that's what we need to be teaching everybody. It just so happens Dan did the initial research, consumer research on snacks that led to Pringles. So he knows a thing or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, when I became technical brand manager, the first thing I got was a report from Yankelovich on in-depth one-on-one interviews lasting a couple hours each with several hundred consumers on everything about snacks and things surrounding adjacent to snacks and families and how they do things around snacks. It's about understanding a person's context. Yes. Yeah. Not just what's in their fridge or their pantry. Yeah. And you know, one of the learnings, their incredible learning for me was Yankelovich would say, don't do focus groups to learn anything. Do focus groups to learn the language. Yeah. And then do one-on-one in-depth if you really want to get deep insights. Yeah.
I want to ask about some personal insights. So as you were coming up, uh, and a lot of our listeners, right, we're, we're in this new stage of young families and balancing work and life. And I think you, you've made it work, <laughs> but you've also managed people who were going through this. What kind of advice in coaching? And I want to ask the question in two very specific ways. The, the general way is what advice in coaching did you give your young managers who were starting their families and trying to still excel and, and be excellent at work? But then more specifically, I'm going to assume you had young, African-American or Hispanic or black or, or brown managers as well, what kind of advice did you give them to, to kind of thread the needle that was still kind of a needle to thread as managing work in life? I probably was a poor example. <laughs> why do every executive I talk to says that? <laughs> Which is actually why I asked, what did you tell your managers then? <laughs> <laughs> so in my 36 years, certainly the 30 that I was on site at P&G, I slept four and a half to five hours a night and worked the rest. Wow. I mean, I had a half hour dinner and then up to my room, my place where I studied and to bed at one thirty, two o'clock. Wow. Every night. And I, you know, I, I got a, my master's in evening college. I'd come home from evening college and do P&G work. So I'm a bad example. I think what helped me uh, a whole lot in retrospect was I didn't have to worry about anything at home. So like the kids, when they were two and three, I didn't realize you had to pay attention to them. I thought, you know, <laughs> wait till I get old enough to have a conversation. Yeah. But my wife, Carol, she took care of all that. And I don't know how singles can do it without that kind of support, but I, I had the luxury of having Carol. What, what advice would you give if you had an email time machine and you could send yourself young Ed in the 60s, just moving to Cincinnati, a little bit of advice? What would you tell him? What would you write in that email? So I would lay out the secret to career success. You'd send him a Hoff t-shirt, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that would uh, be the start. But you know, I did a career advancement model, another model that started with new hires who have skills. And so you you go from showing developing your skills and and getting some results mm -hmm. and having those results be perceived. Mm -hmm. And then you go from skills to knowledge and then you get a agreement on the perception of your knowledge and ultimately your judgment capability. Mm -hmm. And then beyond the judgment capability, you show wisdom. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I would encourage young people to do is to understand that trajectory and compress it. Hmm. That's cool. So I want to shift to the present day a little bit. You know, when we started this podcast, we were only dealing with a pandemic. Yeah. And the question I liked to ask was whether it's Paul Pullman or John or Bob, I'd ask, what, what do you want to tell our leaders about this moment and what we should or shouldn't be doing? Because of your track record, Ed, the things you've done, the things you've learned, and this moment that we're facing, it's an inflection point, it's unique, but it's 
it's been a long time coming and uh, goes without saying that there's unrest. And I think people are finally waking up and realizing that things need to be better. Things can't, we cannot maintain the status quo. And so I have to ask you as a leader in the community, in business, someone involved in freedom, what advice do you give our leaders? What should we be doing better? What aren't we doing well enough right now? Because there's a lot of frustration out there and we're all trying to figure it out right now, because at least the one thing I am thankful is we're all a little bit more awake right now than we were. So, so what, what advice do you have for our leaders? Well, that's a big, big question. <laughs> yeah, I, I would start with the surprise that I felt and feel on how different this mood seems to be. Okay. And frankly, I, I can't put my finger on exactly why it's different or appears to be different. But you saw it. You saw the marchers. You know, yeah, there were some fringe elements who were bad actors. But by and large, there was a movement there that looked really different from Martin Luther King's civil rights movement. Different in terms of the colors of the faces? Makeup, yeah. And and the places that it yeah. was occurring. Everywhere. And how long. Yeah. Which says to me that there's a gut reaction that might have been, you know, open up by George Floyd's killing, but maybe it's been sitting there lurking, that precious freedom has gotten challenged. And the majority of folks, at least in the U.S., and it's apparent abroad as well, want to protect that freedom. You know, it's bigger than Black Lives Matter, although that's a handle and it's a brand. And people are, are willing to risk a lot, even during this pandemic, to show their support for our freedoms, which I, you know, I find extremely encouraging. But how do you turn that into action? Right. And so what I would encourage our leaders is to figure out how to turn it into action. So when we restart the economy, we first rebuild it and restart it in a different way. And part of that, you know, the the gaps that are there are, they're not just racial gaps, they're class gaps. And we need to fix that stuff. I mean, having people not having living wages, you know, working two or three jobs to try to live, come on. That doesn't make any sense, you know, not with all the wealth that we've got in this country. And so, you know, with regard to African-Americans, which, by the way, I also think Appalachians, <laughs> you can't see that they're Appalachians, but similar kinds of needs. The African-American community is uh, bimodal now. You know, th there are uh, a large number of successful African-Americans, and it's almost one out of two, who, you know, are experiencing the fruits of capitalism. But there's so so many who are not. Right. And the statistics are, are really beginning to show those that duality within the African-American group. Hispanics, I don't know enough about their situation, but it's also got the gaps, both the income and the wealth gaps. Yeah. That's real clear. Income inequality is a root of some of some of these things. Yeah. 
Not the only thing. No, but, you know, it, it also suggests that capitalism is not working the way it's supposed to work. You know, the super rich have taken it over and we need to fix that. And so some of the principles that I learned at P&G, and, you know, P&G has been my school for so long. Right. Some of the principles need to be applied. And even P&G needs to look at things a little differently in terms of long-term sustainability and growth. And that's where I think innovation comes in. The one thing I would, I would say is we know how to manage the front end of innovation with diversity because diversity really helps there. You know, it's diversity of thought and ideas as well as backgrounds and ethnicity and race and all that, that's a rich formula for conceptualizing and modeling. But when you get to the last two phases, you know, which are execution that require a lot of discipline, we don't know how to manage diversity. Diversity gets in the way because you got folks who want to go back and redo the concept. Right. The simple solution, not easy to manage, but simple solution is to direct that creativity toward execution and discipline. So you are executing much more creatively, but you're not going backwards. Right. We'll see the implementation. Roll up our sleeves. We've got a lot of work to do. We have to roll up our sleeves and get it done now. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, and and it's going to be maybe a little a little rough. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that anything worth doing, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my automotive supply company has taught me a lot about how to use lean management and is something that we can teach to everybody. Not everybody's going to want to do the execution phase. And so they probably ought to be moved somewhere else. Mm Mm-hmm. But if we, if we manage innovation according to its stages and we include everybody appropriately, we're going to be much better off. That's great. Well, Ed, we've got to wrap up soon, but I want to shift gears and ask a three or four kind of fun questions to, to kind of let people learn a little bit more about you. What do you think? Go ahead. <laughs> what is something about you that surprises people when they find out? It used to be that I play guitar, <laughs> but now a lot of people have seen me in a couple of bands, so okay. the, the cat's Wait, out of the bag. You're, you're in a couple of bands, not just one? Yeah. <laughs> nice. What is a book or a film that has characters or a story that you really relate to? You know, that that that's one of the tough, tough questions because the books I read are science and business. <laughs> <laughs> and partly, you know, back at St. Augustine's High School, we were required to do 10 vocabulary words every day and to read one book, a signed book per week. And we got tested on it every Monday morning. For four years. That's a lot of books. And so I had my share of fiction. <laughs> so I'm a much more nonfiction guy. I don't know. That that one puzzles me. Uh, let me ask the question a different way. What's the last good book or movie that, that you read or saw? Again, it would be a business book. <laughs> <laughs> Make a recommendation, man. The listeners want to. Listeners are looking for stuff to read. Well, you know, uh, everybody's read good to great, but I'm not sure everybody has seen the monograph 
that Jim Collins wrote. It's called Good to Great in the Social Sectors. And to me, it's a, a blueprint for how we might do inclusive capitalism. Okay. He, he doesn't re- reference it as inclusive capitalism, but since I'm working on inclusive capitalism for Cincinnati, it's a roadmap. It's how we can we can do this. It's how we can let people taste and share the fruits of capitalism in a way that many of them have never had an opportunity to do so. And again, it it's built around the three levels of freedom, which are kind of a pyramid. At the low end of the pyramid, it's the things that we're trying to eradicate, the nasty stuff, you know, like oppression and poverty. So I, I call that freedom from. And then uh, in the middle, I call freedom of, and it's our basic human rights and entitlements, freedom of mm-hmm. speech, freedom of religion, etc. And then at the top is what I call freedom to. It's what we aspire to, and that's empowerment and actualization. So every individual has the right to climb freedom's ladder and in an unencumbered way, and we need to support that so that there's movement toward more and more freedom at every level for more and more people. That's not a book, but maybe one day it will be. Well, maybe you can write it, Ed. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of encouragement to write a book. I I find that daunting. But yeah. I, well, I'd read it. I'd read uh, it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Roman. Well, you might have just answered this next question. If you had the infinite resources to go anywhere, do anything, learn any one thing, what would it be? I would fix capitalism awesome. as it's practiced because it's not the way it was intended initially. Right. And it has a great potential to, you know, and it's done it around the globe in places around the globe. It's lifted people out of poverty. And so, you know, we just need to refocus. Recalibrate it. Yeah. 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 Who is someone out there that you would want to get coffee with or interview on a podcast? Well, probably Jim Collins for one. I think I might want to do Gates as well. Yeah. So last question, Ed, what's one final piece of advice or even challenge that you would give to the next generation? I would say if it's back to the dialogue to really learn how to speak to, to people who are different from you in a way that brings you new understanding of the value, the human value of every person. And, you know, what gets in the way a lot are passion and, you know, ignorance. I also say, let knowledge drive your judgment and passion fuel your commitment. And the corollary to that is don't let uh, passion drive your judgment, which is part of part of the problem that, on dialogue. You know, people have these fixed set ideas, stereotypically people, and they never get to know the other person. And that's why the, the marches suggest maybe we can get through that. Well, Ed, thank you just so much for your time and, and sharing your experience. And personally, the, the work you've done in your career has, has frankly paved the way for so many in my generation, in big companies and small companies. So I know I know all of our listeners are just going to love hearing your perspectives. I just want to really thank you for your time and all your work. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad you're doing this. 
And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.